The House is about to fund the government in a way Democrats don't like and, and at an amount that Republicans don't like. Is this Congress doing something that could be good? I mean, probably not. But we're open to the idea and we'll talk it over. And just when I say that, there were almost two fights today in Congress, like physical fights. Trump's legal team is now getting the mafia treatment as they go out of their way to intimidate witnesses. Trump's second term agenda is about as scary as you'd imagine. Oh, and it's time to talk about whether we're allowed to talk about him talking like Hitler. Welcome back to the podcast that helps you, the 54% of the country that votes for progress in every election, convince your conservative friends and family members to join our majority. This is Majority 54. So I don't think I fully understand what's going on here, but apparently there were multiple near fights or actual fights on Capitol Hill today. And I don't mean metaphorically, like physical fights on the Hill. Mm -hmm. Um, Jason, do you have any idea what's going on here? Yes, I will explain both of them. Um, But first, uh, what was your like middle school, like high, like that sort of experience like in terms of fighting? Because that's what this reminds me of. Were there a lot of fights at your school? Yeah. Oh yeah, I have I have some friends from middle school who listen to this podcast, and uh, if we still had a voicemail, they could send it in. But it was like a prison. Like every day, there were multiple fights. Every day, like the cafeteria, like every. 10, 15 minutes, there would be some kind of incident going on. Uh, It was really survival of the fittest. What about you? Uh, Very similar. Um, I went to a middle school where it was, I don't know if this was your, was the dynamic of yours. And I, and I, maybe this has changed. Maybe this is a generational thing. Maybe it's where we grew up. I don't know. But like, it wasn't just that there were fights because people got mad at each other. It was like, there were fights almost like UFC promotion style. Like it was like, you know, these two haven't fought. And then it would just gradually go toward like, oh, I heard they, they're they going to fight. And then there'd be like smack talking back and forth. And eventually they'd have to fight. Is that, I yes. mean, it just. That it, happened to me once. Yeah, my buddy stole my girlfriend. Life. Yeah, my buddy in, in, in eighth grade stole my girlfriend. And I just told everybody uh, in, in like my class that I was going to fight him. And then I kind of, by the time it came to the fight, I was like, man, I kind of don't want to fight this guy. And then it was at gym class, and it was basically like Lord of the Flies. And then everybody's just kind of like huddling around us. And I was like, all right, I got to fight this guy now. So we fought. But it's like at that point, I I mean, I won the fight in part because he was really reluctant to fight. Like he just (laughs) didn't really want to fight me. (laughs) You know, here's here's what I remember about middle school fights and why this dynamic in Congress that we're about to talk about reminds me so much of it. It's that we were in middle school. We weren't so big. And there were some guys that were so big and scary in my middle school that you were genuinely physically afraid to fight them. But for the most part, most of the fights that you had the prospect of getting in, it was like you get banged up, but like you probably weren't going to get permanently injured. It was right. the fear was a social fear. It was yes. it was clear there was going to be a winner and there was going to be a loser and there was going to be you know you could be ostracized as a result. That feels very similar to me to what is happening in Congress right now. Um all right, let me let me go ahead and get into it. So, okay. Some people uh may remember Tim Burchett of Tennessee uh, because he did a very emotional video on the uh, steps of the Capitol when the uh, with the motion to get rid of McCarthy was taking place. And he was like, Kevin McCarthy is my friend. And I've really searched my soul about this. 
and oh, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. $33 trillion. <laughs> Remember he was sitting, he yeah. was like sitting like, like he was, <laughs> we covered was, that, you know? Yeah. 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 We had it on here. And he was like, but you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's about my conscience and I got to do what's right. And even though I may lose a friendship over this, um, breaking news, he has lost a friendship over this, uh, because <laughs> today, apparently while he was doing an interview in the hall, McCarthy with his security detail apparently walked by and what the reporter from NPR said is that uh, McCarthy basically like shoved him. Now, then this dude, you know, chases down McCarthy. He's like, why'd you elbow me in the back? And then he goes and he tries to say he was sucker punched in the kidneys. Uh, and then later it was maybe like walking that back a little bit. Now, as we've mentioned on here before, I have met Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy seems like the kind of fellow who might shove you in the back. Kevin McCarthy does not seem like the kind of fella who then turns around when you chase him down. It's like, let's go. <laughs> so, right. I think we've reached the end of the Kevin McCarthy part of this saga. Well, the kind, my of guy, the kind of guy who does seem like the kind of guy who would turn around and say, let's go, is uh, Senator Mullen from Oklahoma. Now, yes. he, he's, he seems to be the other uh, perpetrator uh, on the Capitol Hill today. And you know, on the other side, you know, it's like sometimes... No, sometimes the House and Senate aren't in step today. It seems like they were. So there was some kind of hearing, labor hearing, <laughs> where Senator Mullen challenged the head of the Teamsters to uh, a fight. Let's see if we have that video here. Let's uh, let's roll that tape. Like he's self-made. Sir, I wish he was in the truck with me when I was building my plumbing company. Myself and my wife was running the office because I sure remember working pretty hard and long hours. Pretends like he's self-made. What a clown. Fraud. Always has been. Always will be. Quit the tough guy act in these Senate hearings. You know where to find me. Any place, any time, cowboy. Sir, this is a time, this is a place. If you want to run your mouth, we can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Okay, that's fine. Perfect. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Oh, hold, stop it. Is that your Sorry. solution? Every poll. No, no, sit down. Sit down. Okay. You know, you're a United States senator. Sit down. Actively. Oh, okay. okay. Sit down, please. All right. Can I respond? Mr. Hold Schiff. it. Hold it. If we can, no, I have the mic. Said. I'm sorry. This is hold what he it. said. You'll have your time. Okay. Can I respond? Oh, no, you can't. <laughs> this is a hearing. <laughs> the fact that it's Bernie Sanders makes it all the better. <laughs> so much better. Okay. I want to hear your take on this first because I think mine it's is super unconventional. I'm for it. I, I think this I'm is too. actually yeah. <laughs> I, I is actually look the Senate. The, the Congress has disgraced itself so much that we might as well go full hog in this. And in defense of Senator Mullen, this guy did say those things on Twitter about a previous hearing. So it wasn't like a random like it had been some other contentious hearing. And apparently there was some female labor leader. Uh, alongside um, the Teamsters guy who was basically like, what are you guys doing? Like, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, so sure. this Teamsters guy is not innocent in this matter. Now, one is a U.S. senator, but the other is a senior leader of a labor organization. You shouldn't be talking about United States senators that way unless they're Josh Hawley, right? Like, there's, <laughs> yeah. like, look, like, I don't know. I'm going on Ken Harbaugh's podcast after this, and he's asked, he wants me to talk about Holly. So maybe I'll challenge Holly to a fight if I ever wind up in yeah. front of the Senate. I feel good about that one. But I feel like this guy, I don't know. 
that senator looks pretty big. I mean, the teamster guy ain't small either, but I don't know. I let, we should let that play out. I understand why Sa- uh, Sanders stopped it, but I would be Sanders for the said, fight. He, <laughs> he goes, people already have no faith in Congress. He literally said that. He goes, please stop. <laughs> All right, so let me let's let's walk this out a little bit here. Okay, first of all, um, let's talk about why Sean O'Brien started talking this way in the first place. Because look. Mark Wayne Mullen, that's his name. His name is Mark Wayne because his, his he had two uncles named Mark and Wayne. His mom was going to name him after one or the other. They put both in the birth certificate. They just never got rid of it. I'll be honest. I think Mark Wayne is kind of a baller name. I think Wait, how do you cool. know that? Because I'm fascinated with this fella. Oh, wow. Um, now, now uh, and, and I've sort of tangentially, we've sort of crossed, but not crossed in, in some of the same places, uh, which I could get into, but it's not that interesting. But anyway. Um, through my other job but so uh uh okay he had a hearing a little while back we don't have a clip but i remember it well where he clearly is just going after sean o'brien and 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 this is a guy who hates unions okay so i don't truck with mark wayne mullen politically like he is one of these guys he had he's had this big plumbing business that he built up he inherited from his dad but it was from what I can tell not the biggest business in the world and he built it into a pretty big business sold it for tens of millions of dollars and you run into these people sometimes and they very much some of these folks particularly from a place like Oklahoma which is a right to work state has been for a very long time they very much dislike labor unions now it's all because of their own experience the fact that he wanted to I'm sure make more money at one point and unions were trying to get paid more and he didn't want to pay him more and you know I'm sure he's run into problems on jobs that were problems from his perspective that were really just unions trying to get people paid decent wages. That's probably the background on that. And so that's why Sean O'Brien got as mad as he did is because he was telling Sean O'Brien in a hearing, you've never worked a day in your life, basically treating him like because he's the head of the Teamsters, he's not a real worker. He doesn't stand for real people who work for a living and all this stuff. Just a bunch of back and forth machismo ridiculousness. Now, the other stuff I know about Mark Wayne Mullen is that during the Afghanistan pullout, Mark Wayne Mullen tried to go in. He, I think he tried to go to like Tashkent and then like get a helicopter in to get this family of American citizens out. Again, grandstanding and silly and, and very dangerous and would have caused a lot of problems for the people on the ground. But as somebody who went through that period, I kind of feel him. You know, I look very seriously at going myself at one point. Um, so I get that. Now, with all that said, the guy stands for everything that's absolutely terrible. And he's the kind of dude who, I was quoted in a Rolling Stone article talking about this last week on guns. He is the kind of dude, I'm sure, that if I were to actually meet him in person and we were, and he were to say something about me being a veteran, I bet he would pull out pictures of his guns on his phone and show them to me. Okay? I thought like, you were going to challenge him dude. to a fight. You got to be careful, man. No, if you're, no, if I'm you're, not. Ever, you're ever in front of the Senate for a confirmation on something, he'll, he'll pull out that, this clip and then we'll... I'm, I'm, I know. I'm not going to challenge him to a fight. And I'll tell you why, because I continued to research uh, Mr. Mullen, uh, Senator Mullen. And one of the things I found is that while I have some training in the whole hand to hand business from the army, it was quite a little while ago. And this is a fellow who uh, has won three UFC fights. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not a surprise that he was like, oh, well, this is a good way to handle it. Now, let me bring this down to the part where I kind of dig this. I don't dig them fighting. That's not good. I don't want my kids to see that. But this is different than the middle school thing in that, or at least different than, well, I don't know. I like how he proposed it. He was calm. 
It yeah. wasn't like a dude in a bar being like, you think you're better than me. Like he wasn't yeah. doing that. I'm doing O'Brien's accent, but he was just like, Hey, look, this is what you said. You want to do this? And to O'Brien's credit, he's like, yeah, let's do it. I mean, he literally used the term. We are two consenting adults. Yeah. It was like, Hey, should we step outside? Like very calm. Now it shouldn't be allowed to happen. He had all but... the energy of a guy who knows how to fight. Like there, this is the thing when you get older, like when you're young, you're like, let me just like you, your ego just brings you in a certain direction. Actually, when we were younger, the UFC thing wasn't like a real thing. So there, the chances are of you running into a true pro on the streets was much lower. Right. Like there are people like did karate and stuff, which is like arguably helpful. No offense to anybody who's into that. But nowadays, there's so many people who are in their midlife crises who are genuinely lethal, uh, who've done these things where somebody could you never know what you're running into. And so unless you're truly confident in who you are, stay out of fights. I mean, stay out of fights anyway, but you certainly can get yourself into trouble. And this is one of those examples. Now, maybe we should talk substance here because as, as fun as this is, <laughs> yeah. this is not the only way that the House and Senate have been aligned. Uh, actually, it looks like we're close. And today, it looks like a vote could happen today on uh, a deal to avert at least temporarily a shutdown. Uh, news reports, at least uh, as of this recording, which we're recording on Tuesday afternoon at roughly 3 p.m. Eastern time, it looks like Mike Johnson uh, is going to uh, push a bipartisan vote and kind of uh, push past like some of this uh, one-party procedure to extend funding through early next year. It seems like there's like a kind of a two-part uh, element to this, where defense spending has a little bit longer of a timeline. It goes until early February, whereas uh, other agencies have until mid-January, which is silly. I don't know why we keep doing this and not just extend it permanently, but it looks like Democrats are on board and Schumer has indicated that he'll support it because it seems like a lot of the nonsense around the IRS and even the border stuff, which I thought was going to have, at least as of before recording this, it didn't look like the border stuff would make it into there. I thought that actually could have had legs, but the this seems like good news, although it's just so silly that they just don't do this permanently. It seems to me like we're in a Mike Johnson honeymoon period. Yes, because sure. you know it, it's not like he's really reached out to both sides. I mean, he is he is he's keeping funding levels about where the Democrats wanted him. Like he's leaving it in place. It's a regular continuing resolution. But then the two part the bifurcated process is something that the Freedom Caucus had wanted. Uh, I guess because it, they feel it gives them more leverage because there's going to be more deadlines. So I, in that way, he's you know coming up with this compromise where he goes to the Freedom Caucus, okay, I'm going to do your timing, but to the Democrats, I'm going to do your level of funding. But it's the reason I think it's a honeymoon period is because I'm pretty sure that if McCarthy had done this, they still would have had the exact same coup to get rid of it, right? Because yeah. because he's he's only going to be able to pass this with Democratic votes, which was their complaint in the first place so i guess so that's what i meant in the introduction when i'm like i guess this is good i mean it seems to be like it's an actual a little a little from the left a little from the right and which i, I i'm i'm like borderline hopeful as silly as the multiple deadlines thing is like am i crazy does that seem like maybe they're doing what they're supposed to do it's hard to say i don't trust them either like part of me thinks right. that they're, part of me thinks that they're gonna push the showdown as close as possible to Biden's re-election to yeah. make it like, cause they have a, a vested interest in chaos. So the cynical part of me thinks that that 
could be what's going on here. But, you know, like if we're in the middle of a government shutdown, as we're getting closer to November, that seems like the kind of thing they'd want, you know? Um, it seems like it seems like both sides for once are appropriately worried about being blamed. It seems like, you know, Democrats don't don't like the dual dates, um, but they they feel like at this point they're going to get blamed because he actually kept the funding level where they wanted it. And then Republicans have already been blamed. So they're gun shy. Um, so more of this, maybe more of this sort of approach. And maybe at some point we actually get like a budget yeah, uh, that passes. So, well, we're going to take a break when we come back. There is some amazing and super damaging footage about Trump that just came out of Georgia. Uh, of course, cause this it wouldn't be an episode of, uh, majority 54 without Trump legal. Uh, and then we're going to talk about, um, Trump, I think plagiarizing Hitler. Uh, and we'll talk about the implications of that. Uh, and and some more uh, when we come back. Everybody knows that wine is the go-to gift for the holidays, but being in the grocery stores during the holidays is like being stuck in a maze. And don't get me started on the wine aisle. Between the people crowding the aisle, the giant selection, and my extremely limited knowledge of wine, I always end up just finding something that has like a 92-point deal on it and then running to the checkout. But with First Leaf, they take the stress out of finding new wine. First Leaf is the wine club that sends me a personalized shipment of bottles that are based on my unique palate right to my door. All I have to do is go to First Leaf's website, answer a few questions about my likes and my dislikes, and their expert team will select a customized assortment of world-class wines based on my preferences. And after I've tried each wine, I can rate them so that First Leaf can send me more wines based on my feedback. This is great because it means I don't have to like say, I like this kind of tannin. I don't even know what a tannin is. I don't have to like have any wine terminology in order to do this. I'm just like, this one tasted good. This one didn't taste as good. And eventually I know what kind of wine I like. Plus all First Leaf wine is priced 30% lower than what you'd pay at a wine store. And every selection is backed by First Leaf's 100% satisfaction guarantee. I've already received a bunch of different wine shipments from First Leaf and each one has been better than the next because that's like how the system works. From my Merlot to my Pinot Noir, First Leaf makes it easy while their personalized shipments perfectly capture my favorite components of each variety. Find the wine you'll love this holiday season with First Leaf. Go to tryfirstleaf.com slash majority to sign up and you'll get your first six hand curated bottles for just $44.95. That's tryfirstleaf.com. That's T-R-Y-F-I-R-S-T-L-E-A-F.com slash majority. Tryfirstleaf.com slash majority. Heart health and staying healthy, especially when you have a family that you want to be able to spend as much time with as possible is so important. We could all benefit from heart healthy energy. One of the best ways to get some by supporting your blood pressure and your circulation. I'm 42 now. These are the kind of things that I think about now. Superbeats heart chews are an easy and convenient way to support healthy blood pressure. They're plant-based and they're stimulant free. So you get a green boost without the jitters. Paired with a healthy lifestyle, the antioxidants in Superbeats are clinically shown to be nearly two times more effective at promoting normal blood pressure than a healthy lifestyle alone. Superbeats heart chews are incredibly delicious. Seriously, they taste, I don't even know if I'm allowed to say the brand name they taste like, but that's what they taste like. Uh, it's a good brand name. It's something you grew up with. It's so much better than any alternative supplements out there. I take my Superbeats heart chews each morning and it's really kickstarted my morning routine. After taking my Superbeats heart chews, I feel like I have more energy. I'm ready to take on the day. It's the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist, most importantly, recommended beat brand for cardiovascular health support. It's blood pressure support you can trust. 
Superbeet's heart chews support healthy circulation, circulation, so you not only get blood pressure support, you also get productive, heart-healthy energy without the crash. Double your potential, that sounds pretty good, with Superbeet's heart chews. Get a free 30-day supply of Superbeet's heart chews and 15% off your first order by going to getsuperbeats.com and using promo code MAJORITY. That's getsuperbeats, B-E-E-T-S.com, code MAJORITY. All right, Ravi, this is our now continuing segment, Law and Order Trump. I was I was more excited than I should probably admit for that sound. But okay, uh, (laughs) this is actually really fascinating on a lot of different levels. The Washington Post had attained a series of recordings from statements of four defendants in the Georgia case uh, who accepted plea deals, and these were recordings that apparently they were required to do uh, per those plea deals, just basically laying it all on the line, and. These videos, I think, add a lot to the public understanding of the strength of the case here. Let's start with Jenna Ellis uh, and what she had to say in this recording. Uh, he had come up to me and introduced me to his family and had said, thank you for the work that you're doing uh, for the president. And um, I said something to him like, I'm sorry that uh, we haven't been able to do more. And I uh, emphasized him, I thought that the um, the the claims and the ability to challenge uh, the election results was essentially over because of the dismissal of the Texas versus Pennsylvania case from the United States Supreme Court. And he said um, to me in a kind of excited tone, well, we don't care and we're not going to leave. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, the boss, meaning President Trump and everyone understood the boss. um, That's what we all called him. Um, he said, the boss uh, is not going to leave under any circumstances. We are just going to stay in power. And I said to him, well, it doesn't quite work that way, you realize. And he said, we don't care. And you've told us what you knew the boss to mean. What did you know we to mean in that context? We, I believed um, to mean President Trump uh, as the boss and uh, anyone who, including Mr. Scavino, who would have aided him in that effort, which my understanding at the time would have been uh, some of his staff, including uh, Mr. Meadows. So you have that. Uh, Ken Chesebro uh, disclosed that he had briefed Trump on the alternate uh, electors plot. Um, and. Uh, Sidney Powell was asked why she thought uh, Trump was relying on her for evidence, uh, for, sorry, for legal advice. And she said, quote, because we were the only ones willing to support his effort to sustain the White House. I mean, everyone else was telling him to go pack up and go. Now, the combination of these three things feels relevant because if he was briefed on the alternate electors, then he was squarely in the middle of the conspiracy. The Ellis clip seems to indicate that he was the one pushing the conspiracy. And then, you know, Powell is saying that, you know, it wasn't that he was relying on legal advice. He was seeking only advice for what he wanted to do. Uh, So, I mean, I'm no expert on this, but that seems pretty damaging. Well, from a conspiracy perspective, I think it's, particularly important because you have to connect him particularly to the electors plot right because there seems to have been of the evidence we've been aware of so far 
we all know that Trump was for literally anything to hold on to the office. But the question was, would there be evidence that he was aware of this plot or that plot? Or would they be better at this organized crime thing and protect the principal and give him feasible, uh, you know, plausible deniability? But no, the answer is they're not, because that's that's why you prosecute something as a conspiracy, so that you can have leverage over potential co-defendants that can then become cooperating witnesses. And that's what's happened. The interesting thing now, well, it's all interesting and terrifying, but the development that comes out of this is these proffer videos are basically like, hey, you, you want to take this plea agreement. You want us to take into account what you're going to, in order for you to get the lighter sentence that you want, you want uh, us to actually take into account what it is you're going to say at trial against the main defendant, which is former President Trump. And so as a result, you need to like do an interview. Uh, it's like a deposition, but it's more of like, like a witness prep. That's what the proffer is, right? Now, once they have this, once the prosecution has this, they have to provide it to the defense. It's basic discovery. It's, you're not allowed any surprises really at trial unless you're directly rebutting something. So they have to give to Trump and his lawyers, hey, here's what Jenna Ellis is gonna say. Here's what Chesabro is going to say. Here's what Powell is going to say so that they can prepare their defense. That's the law. Now, what you wouldn't usually do is then make that public, right? Particularly if you're, I don't know, running for public office. You don't have, there's no reason here why Trump has any interest in making that public. It looks bad for Trump. It's probably not good for Trump's campaign. There's only one reason to make that public, which is, a lot of the people who follow you are crazy and they will issue death threats against people who used to follow you and are now turning on you. But it's supposed to be confidential until trial, but they're not letting that happen, which is why it's very interesting to me that Fannie Willis, who's asked twice, or now second time, I guess, for a protective order and didn't get it, has now done what, what she's able to do, which is to say, from now on, when we have proffer videos, I'm not sending it to the other side. The other side's lawyers can come to our office and view them and know what's in it, but they can't have it. That to me is like, one, the right decision. Two, more evidence that they're being treated like organized crime. And when you're talking to people about these stories, I would zero in on stuff like that. I would be like, hey, the prosecutors are having to take steps that you usually only take with organized crime because of witness intimidation. It's amazing. I mean, this race against time that we're in right now, you know, to say that we're witnessing history, I think is to understate matters. Like we are, we are in the middle of, and, and, and honestly, the fact that this is not leading the news because it's, I think people have become almost desensitized to the sheer volume of cases that Trump has like so much of the conversation, including even our episode last week, although we do make sure to hit Trump law and order every week, is is about Biden and his liabilities and can he do it? And I'm like, look, and, and I, I, you know, our audience knows I, I, I don't sugarcoat my feelings on that, but this is absurd that this isn't the most important thing, like conversation that's leading the news every day is that the guy who is, is, a shoe in for the Republican nomination and former president of the United States and leading Biden in the polls has like a never ending series of cases like this, that not one of them is going his way, you know, like, 
it doesn't seem like he is winning a single case right now. There are so many different ways in which this should just be leading the news, right? Just the fact that he's a former president, that a former president is in court for one thing should be the biggest story in the world. Just the financial case in New York should be the biggest story. It doesn't matter. Now, when you add to that, that he's like the Republican prohibitive favorite, he's like going to be the nominee for president of the United States. Like, (laughs) it is nuts that it is not the biggest story in the world. Like, how about just if you take all that out, if he wasn't president, if he wasn't running for president, but he was a guy who came very close to overthrowing the government, that would be the biggest story. I don't understand. It's, It's like, well, this connects, I guess we're just tired of it. It connects the dots to what's happening in Congress, right? Which is when you have the sort of standard bearer of your party acting like a child and a criminal, then, you know, sort of everything downhill from there uh, is going to be as extreme or worse. And and it's wild because, you know, not only does he have all these cases against him, but in, in almost to a case, he's acting... Um, in a way that would put anybody else behind bars until the uh, trial proceeds, right? Like his son made a perjury joke this week. We didn't even talk about that, right? Trump has had one gag order threat after another from one court after another. And then you have this where they're intimidating witnesses, which wouldn't be the first time they've been accused of intimidating witnesses. It's wild. And, you know, and it's honestly like I, I, don't, I never want to hear Hunter Biden's name again. Like the the idea that there's like a scandal around Biden is laughable. You compare it's it so, this. yeah. I mean, look, it is just a matter of. Do you ever like going back to the middle school analogy when there was like the kid in class who always acted up, and then the the standards like there was such a double standard then like that kid would get away with more and more yes. because it was like if that kid had a day where he didn't hit anybody, it was like, okay, all right, we're making some progress. And it was, and it can sometimes be very frustrating for the other students, right? Because it was like, you know, this kid gets away with everything. That's where we are. It's because our expectations of him are so low. It's like he took the old expectation management game that presidential candidates and other candidates would use in debates where they're like, oh, you know, my opponent's done a lot of debating. You know, I'm kind of new to this. And he's like, yeah, right. And he was just like, let's use this on everything in the world. Like, let's be so, like, incompetent, so rude, so mean, so awful, so not law-abiding that no one expects anything out of us other than being mean to the people that we don't like. And, I mean, at this point, I'm not even being productive in what I'm saying. I'm just complaining. But sometimes it is worth complaining about. And and I think we need a renewed uh, – we had a period after um, 2020. Where uh, and going into 2020, where the media kind of said, "Yeah, we got this wrong in 2016," and especially after January 6th, that was like, "We are not going to have a double standard anymore." Like that, you know, they weren't putting him on TV for a while, and we need to get back to that. We need to get back to like, if you're putting him on TV, you're not legitimizing his views. You are talking about the fact that the guy is under federal indictment and all sorts of other indictment and being sued for good reason. Right. The problem is like now the media isn't what it used to be. Like they're, it's a disaggregated media and more people are getting their information from disaggregated channels like this than they are from the actual standard media. 
And that means that even if, you know, Jake Tapper or somebody, not not to pick on him, I have no idea how he's covering this. Uh, like, even if he, he got Tapper's this- Tapper's really right, good about it. Yeah, like, like yeah. even if MSNBC, CNN, even Fox were great on this, it, it, it doesn't solve for what so many are doing out there. It's really tricky. Uh, but we'll we'll stay on this Trump subject because Trump has been leaning into his uh, strongman persona in some very worrisome ways. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about that and then some rather authoritarian ideas he's been floating on the trail when we get back. If you're a longtime listener, you might know that I've been drinking AG One for about my like three years, four years. I mean, like every morning. Uh, and when I started drinking it daily, it made a huge difference for me. I realized, well, this is exactly what I needed. I threw away my multivitamin because I realized this was my multivitamin. It's great for me because it also delivers uh, like uh, hydration as well, obviously, first thing in the morning. But it's got all this amazing stuff in it. Um, there's travel packs, which I use. I'm actually on the road today um, uh, at a hotel and I was like, I'm going to try Peloton. I've never tried Peloton. So they had a Peloton machine. So I, I went down to the fitness center and I tried it. Eh, I'm okay with it. It's fine. I might, I might get into it. But I realized I had forgotten to take my travel pack. So then I travel pack afterwards and I felt much better. And I realized maybe I would have reviewed that exercise equipment completely differently had I actually done my AG1 first thing in the morning. But I got out of my rhythm because I was traveling. So anyway, it's a huge part of my day is what I'm trying to say. So uh, look. I got a bunch of friends who have started drinking AG1, and they always tell me how much they love it and what a difference it makes for them. So, uh, please share your personal experience with AG1 with us. Like, let us know. Like, you tweet at me and Ravi, uh, or X, or whatever the heck we're calling that now, and let us know if, if we got you into, into AG1. So, it's the supplement I trust to provide the support that my body needs daily, and that's why they've been a partner for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one year supply of vitamin D3K2. And five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash majority. That's drinkag1.com slash majority. Check it out. Sleep is incredibly important in my household, which is why I love my Helix mattress so much. Now, here's the order. Uh, in, you know, it's like my family, you know, Diana, True, Bella. And then right into that, I, I, oh, the dog. No, the dog is after. The dog is after my mattress. So like in terms of what I'm, I'm on the road right now, what I'm, what I'm looking forward to when I get home, I want to see my family and then I want to sleep on my mattress that I love. And then I would like to see my dog. Now I'm going to see my dog before the mattress, but you get my point. Uh, and that's because, I, you know, I'm a guy who like, I used to be such a pro at sleeping on any surface. I was a soldier. Uh, you know, like I prided myself on that. Idea. I could sleep anywhere, but now I'm totally spoiled, man. Like I dread this hotel bed that I'm looking at over here because I, I just miss my mattress. It just knows exactly what to do with my spine. It's perfect. So with everything going, everything going on in life, from work to a demanding social schedule to sports and kids and kids sports, it's incredibly important to me and probably to you that you're getting a good night's sleep every single night. So you should take the Helix sleep quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes. Uh, I took the Helix sleep quiz. I was matched with uh, a midnight Lux mattress because I wanted something that felt like medium, uh, medium to firm, and and I sleep on my side, so it really helped me uh, get exactly where I needed to be. Don't take my word for it. Helix Sleep has over twelve thousand five star reviews. So by supporting Helix, you're allowing them to support this show. Go purchase your Helix and thank us later for your best night's sleep. Helix is offering twenty percent off all mattress orders and 
two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash majority54. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long with Helix. Better sleep starts now. Well, Jason, I think you tweeted about this, but there's like, Trump is like plagiarizing Hitler. What's going on here? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> all right. <laughs> let's let's talk about this. And, and this is this is thorny territory, okay? Because once you start, like, my good buddy Abe, who ran on my politics, always says, whenever you have the instinct to compare someone to Nazis, just use the word fascist instead of Nazis, because you can get away with it. Uh, and he's probably right, but I'm going to do it anyway, because uh, when you look at what Trump has been saying lately, it sounds a lot like Hitler. And some people are starting to say that it sounds like he's doing it on purpose. Uh, so let's see. This is Trump on Veterans Day, which is lovely. We pledge to you that we will root out the communists, uh, Marxists, fascists and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country that lie and steal and cheat on elections. Um, now, it, as the Washington Post pointed out, it sounds a lot like something Adolf Hitler had said and would say. I mean, he talked about vermin, he talked about communists, he talked about rooting them out. It was all these things. And and then when a Trump spokesman was asked about it, they responded, their entire existence will be crushed when President Trump returns to the White House. Um, so I all I did is I, I shared on Instagram this uh, graphic that Midas uh, put up, the Midas Touch Network put up. And I had uh, a lot of people were like, oh, my God, that's terrible. That's scary. Uh, a couple of people were like, hey, when you do that, you are um, minimizing the Holocaust. And I responded to those people. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, no, I don't think so. No, I'm not minimizing the Holocaust because uh, I'm not comparing what Trump said to the Holocaust. Uh, I'm comparing what Trump said to what Hitler said before he did the Holocaust. and. So that doesn't make it a comparison. It makes it a warning. Like, it's like he sounds like Hitler before the Holocaust, which seems like something we should take note of. Yeah, I'm so curious as to the roots of this, the origins of it, because Trump clearly isn't reading anything. So is this Stephen Miller? Like, where, who's sitting in the room and being like, yeah, this is the right idea. It signals to all the right people what we want to do. Now, I hesitate to go down this road, but it is interesting to think about what they're trying to do. Like, number one, are they trying to get people to have this very conversation that we're having? Like, being like, oh my God, he's, um, oh, Jeremy says his ex-wife claimed he had a book of Hitler's speeches on his bedside. Okay, well, that answers that. Maybe he, this is the one thing he reads, um, other than the New York Post. Uh, yeah. Okay, that would be interesting. My other theory is going to be like, there was some meeting somewhere that, somebody's decided, hey, like, let's own the libs and get them to, you know, get themselves into a tizzy while also signaling to far right lunatics who didn't show up in the midterm elections that their guy is here for the next election. And maybe, and he could be right about this, maybe some of the anti-Semitic left who we've talked about, who, sad to say, you know, seem to get, um, get up in the morning for this kind of thing. No offense, but I guess take offense to that if that's you. Uh, like, like there are some people who, unfortunately, are on our side. I guess who are super anti-Semitic, who are looking for their candidate in this race, and maybe he's saying, you know what? Like, even if it's one percent 
maybe those people will see me, even if I have far right views on this, maybe they'll see my chaos and willingness to go to a certain place as some kind of asset in this race. I really have no idea. Do you have a theory about this? Well, I was thinking about it and I was like, there's a quote. And as always, it is a Mark Twain quote that is so perfect, which is that uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And so my my point is, I think it may be as simple as, I don't think he's necessarily purposefully trying to sound like Hitler. I just think he sounds like Hitler. <laughs> I think I think it's just like, uh, I just think like, look, man, this is like dangerous territory. But the way I like to describe this is, sometimes I look at people and I think, what would they have done in Germany in the 1930s? And sometimes it's hard to tell. And sometimes it's not hard to tell. And sometimes the answer is, well, I guess my family and I, when we went through the neighborhood looking for a place to hide, we'd probably skip their house, right? And sometimes it's like, hmm, probably he would have been in on starting it. Now I'm not, look, that's all I'll say about that is I think it's not history repeating itself, it's history rhyming. It's that you have a personality here that is authoritarian in nature. There seems to be two major motivations for Donald Trump running for president this time. Motivation number one, stay out of prison. Be president, be able to either pardon yourself or just uh, benefit from immunity, uh, from you know immunity because you're, you're president, like uh, privilege, uh, and therefore not be able to be sent to prison. That's reason number one. Reason number two seems to be vengeance and revenge for what he's going through. Because if you look at his speeches, they seem to over and over again be laced with, and we're going to do this to them. We're going to, you know, all these people who have done this to us, we're going to prosecute them. We're going to throw them in prison. We're going to. And so when you put those two things together, particularly the second thing, when you highlight that, and you have a guy who's been authoritarian from the beginning, I mean, just the way he came down the escalator and started talking about Mexicans. I mean, look, the dude is talking about a Muslim ban again when there haven't been any, like, there's no sense that there's, like, going to be another 9-11 or something like that in our country. Like, there's not even, like, a pop culture window for that kind of bigotry right now, um, other than what's happening on the other side of the world. Um, but it's nothing in the U.S. right now. Like, I just think that's who the dude is. And I think, I think that left to his own devices, he's going to sound like Hitler. Yeah, there's, there's an amazing book. Uh, and kind of a scary book in many ways called They Thought They Were Free by Milton Mayer. And this book is all about the average German during the lead up to World War II and as the Nazis took power and all about, well, what's happening with them? Because you have to believe that it wasn't like that Germany was some collection of only sociopathic nutcases, right? It, they they had to depend upon uh, people like you and I in some way going along with this thing. And the book is all about like, probably, well, what, probably, probably what more it? like you than me. Like, yeah, well, I guess you, but like you in some <laughs> other circumstance, right? I guess it, yeah, I yeah, wouldn't yeah, be yeah, safe there either, I guess. Yeah. I don't really know a lot yeah, about no, the we, ideology. They, uh, would, they wouldn't be depending on either of us, but I get yeah. your point. <laughs> yeah, I'm both Polish and Indian. I think that's two strikes yeah. against me. For them, but they, um, uh, but the, but basically, just like, what do you like? How do people think through this? And it's actually really fascinating. Like, like there, there is actually is no one answer to it. Like, there's like, 
people some people didn't know that much about what was going on but then slowly like the the frog in the in the the pot or whatever um they start to realize and then you can figure out what their mental gymnastics are some like grabbed onto it because of like frustrations with like world war one and the recession and all that and some were just primed like some were straight up anti-semitic and were really excited to have uh somebody to bully around and i think about that a lot now because i don't know like i don't want to get into like stuff around the war right now but i'm seeing like you know we we saw what happened on the right like we saw what happened on the right uh in the lead up to 2016 and beyond and and how that had been long in, in in the making. And what I found fascinating is like, there's like an authoritarian, like there's like something in the bloodstream of this country that is way more prime for authoritarianism and political violence that's more widespread than I would have ever thought 10 years, 20 years ago. When you think about like what you were saying about what the average German understood happening at that point. You know, one, it's important to remember that uh, Hitler was elected at first before he, you know, Palpatine style, obviously is what inspired that Star Wars story, like started consolidating power, executive power, doing all these things. But, you know, this is not the age of social media. It's not the age of any of these things. So yes, clearly people were aware that there were Jews who were being rounded up, but it was like, it wasn't something that was widely in the news. So as a result, like maybe it happened in your street. Maybe you knew a few people that it happened to. But I, I think there weren't that many people who assumed that the camps were as pervasive as they were, that the executions were as pervasive as they were. I think that even the folks who were probably working in the camps probably had somewhat limited knowledge to the degree that there were other camps. You know, I was just watching yesterday that Band of Brothers episode where they yeah, liberate so a camp. And, so and, they, and they are they're shocked. They don't even know what it is when they, and that's a true story. I mean, the easy company has a true story and, and it's, it's, they literally do not know what the camp is when they, when they get to it. And because once the war started, it was a closed off society. The, where I'm going with this is. Yeah. Oh, but even on that front, like it's interesting because the soldiers don't know, but you remember that part of it, like where the, they're fighting with the baker. Like, remember that where the baker, mm -hmm. they're, they're like, they're freaking out at the baker and just taking the bread to bring it to the um, the uh, camp. concentration camp survivors, and and they're angry at him. The baker's claiming he doesn't know whatever. And actually, this book is not going to give you the answer about what everybody knew. I think it's complicated. Some people knew a whole lot. Some people knew a whole lot less. I think as time went on, people knew a lot more um, as time went on, and that's part of what makes it scary is is how people kind of assent to that, you know. And and it's. And, and the lesson in all of it for us should be not that like Trump is Hitler, but that nationalism uh, can be confused with patriotism and you can do really awful things in the name of, of patriotism when you when you couple it with nationalism. And and so over time, I think that's how we got there. The difference is now we we have a much greater capacity to see what's happening uh, and therefore to stand up against it. Um, you know, when you look at what really made a difference, for instance, in the civil rights movement is people seeing it, seeing the fire hoses over the bridge uh, and seeing those demonstrations on television, it made a difference. But I guess what I'm saying is, it's just that like the idea that anything in particular can't happen here 
whether it's Jews, you know, any other minority group, I just think it's important to remember the adage that a friend said to me that I repeat on the show often, which is that, you know, there's two kinds of populism. There's leftist populism, which blames the rich for a lot of the problems. And then there's populism on the right, which blames minorities for the problems. And Trump's not going to blame the rich unless he tells you the minorities are rich. Mm-hmm. And that's what it has to do with it. You know, that's that's why it's so similar. Hitler was a figure who after, you know, World War One, uh, Germany had been pretty well devastated and Hitler made people feel nationalistic pride that sounded like patriotism again. And he blamed a minority group and he said they had all the money. And and if you think about it, if you draw that out, it can sound very similar to what Trump does. Yeah, it's worth mentioning that there he he definitely put some policy meat on those bones. So uh, basically, at the same time, he talked about how his second term agenda would revolve around what the New York Times described as giant camps. Uh, and Stephen Miller seems to be just floating like a dramatic expansion of uh, camps and um, and expulsions of undocumented immigrants, including uh, longtime residents who have been here. And this it feels like he's seizing upon this migrant crisis, which is a real crisis. Like, and this is, this is going to be an issue all the way up through Election Day. Um, because you've got blue cities, New York, Chicago, where the Democratic Convention is going to be, that are really struggling to deal with this crisis. And, and Trump, we know what he's going to do. He's going to seize on it to bring the most dramatic possible solution to it, or solution <laughs> as he sees it, um, or a new problem. Uh, and he's going to couple it with other culture war issues like the Muslim ban. Like, in a weird way, he's like, he's, his, his position is somehow going to be both anti-Semitic and Islamophobic. Uh, you know? Like, and it's how, it's how dog whistles work. We can't put it past him to thread that needle, you know, because some of the most pro-Israeli people, no matter what he says, uh, are going to be with him. So, like that sort of Ben, oh, you know, Netanyahu sure. camp, you know, like that Netanyahu pro-Israeli camp that's like really dominant in certain swing states is always going to be with him. Which is why, like, it's really important for us to stake out this other ground. And you know, I've been doing it a lot of lost debate. You and I have been doing it, and what I find really surprising is, and a lot of listeners to this podcast have sent me messages over the past week on this, is that. What the position that you and I have laid out on this podcast is the position of the majority of Americans, not just the majority of Democrats. Like when you explain to them who Hamas is and what's going on in Gaza, they're all going to be like, yeah, Hamas is evil. Israel should be able to defend itself. And you also explain to them what's going on with the settlements and who Netanyahu is. And you're like, yeah, that's wrong. And it's, it's both counterproductive to Israel and it's just morally wrong. Most people agree on that. And the thing is, Democrats just need to be clear on this right now. Because Trump is going to come up with the most evil solution to this possible, and he's going to use this, you know, to use the Emmanuel quote, he's not going to let a crisis go to waste. He's going to try to use it to dust off his greatest hits um, that, you know, got him elected in the first place. If, if, if you are a progressive Jew and you're listening to this, you got to keep in mind that Trump doesn't have to choose between anti-Semitism and Islamophobia because... Because Trump is going to – his vote is he, – he just feels like it's white people. Like Donald Trump's not planning to get a lot of votes from people who aren't white. Mm-hmm. And if some of the people who come along with him are are white Jews uh, who are 
who agree with Netanyahu on things, cool. That's he wants that. In fact, he has been very clear that he expects that. That he he thinks that's what Jews ought to be doing, right? And and then uh, as far as the Islamophobia side, like, look, if you go to most parts of this country, people are not going to be like, hey, you got to choose one or the other, right? <laughs> like, I mean, most parts, like, if you you find somebody who's a racist. Uh, and anti-Semitic, like it's not like they're not contradicting themselves. I've they're got some in my own family. Is... I've got some right. in my own I mean, family. It, it's honestly why I was like, there are certain members of my family who I will not mention at the moment. Um, I'm I'm working on some family diplomacy, but who I was really on the edge of my seat when this this whole Hamas Israel thing happened because I'm like, wow, this is like, I don't know which hatred's going to win out here. Like, what, what? How are you going to come down on this? Um, but the but what Trump does want to do, and he could very well succeed, is depress turnout for Democrats. Because mm -hmm. uh, certainly within certain Arab American communities that have voted for Biden, and certainly within other communities of color that have voted for Biden, uh, Trump doesn't need to earn those votes. He just needs to convince those people not to show up. And that is a real thing. Uh, it is a, it's think people are explicitly threatening it. Uh, and it's tricky, Jason, because the people in my life who would fall into that category, I would say, are not putting on the table at the moment reasonable positions, nor do they even seek compromise. And it's, by the way, not our in, within our control fully. Obviously, we have some control as the United States, but it's not fully within our control. So it's a really tricky situation. It's a good reminder to people who listen to the show that your job is not just to convince conservatives to not be such conservatives, that your job is also to make sure that the people in your life who believe the way you believe, but don't talk about politics very often, don't pay that much of attention to the news. But if you were to ask them about something and explain a situation, they would always kind of go your way on it. We all know folks like this to make sure those people stay involved and that they vote because the American attention span is short. But when you are also an American who you know, look, let's be honest, understandably has tuned out from the news to a certain degree because it's so depressing, so overwhelming. And frankly, there's just so much of it. Well, then that even great, that creates an even shorter attention span because it's hard to remember just how awful it was under Trump as a result. And so then, then you get to a place where people can kind of go like, eh, I don't think I need to be involved in this one. It's not going to make that much of a difference because they forget because it's easy to forget that kind of thing when the media cycle turns over like 24 times a day, once an hour. And so it's not just your job to convince people to join our majority. It's also your job to convince people who are in our majority to stay active, to make sure they vote and to continue to care. Well, I mean, I feel like it's a good place to end, Jason. Um, mm -hmm. should, uh, should we do grab an or? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll re <clears throat> repeat what I talked about last week, which is, uh, you know, Veterans Community Project, uh, the organization where I'm the president of National Expansion, we uh, did a thing last week um, around Veterans Day where we posted um, some uh, listings of uh, homeless encampments on Airbnb and that kind of thing. Um, rather than asking you to go and Google that and learn more about it, I'll just say go to vcp.org. Um, if you haven't done anything else uh, Veterans Day wise, then you think maybe you should have done something. Go to go to vcp.org. That's veteranscommunityproject.org and, and make a donation because we, we uh, build villages of tiny houses for homeless veterans with wraparound services and transition them into uh, into permanent housing uh, at the highest success rate in the country. And we're building these around the country. Oh, look, there's a little thing on the screen. Oh, Thanks, nice. y'all. That's cool. Um, 
All right. Well, that's that's my grab and oar. Uh, I'll give you my quick one for us, which is um, I'm actually in uh, Maine right now. I'm in Portland, Maine, um, because I am speaking at a like PTSD awareness sort of event here. They brought me in to do that. I'm excited for it. It's um, for vets. But it, it also it's only my second time ever in, in Maine. And uh, it's a little colder than last time. Oh my God. I love Maine, man. Like I went today down, uh, I'm in Portland. So I I took an Uber downtown and I just walked around and like that sound of a seagull is like one of the most relaxing sounds. And then I, I'm not really like a a lobster guy, but like they came in there like we're having this special. So I ate two lobsters. I put on the bib, I ate two lobsters. And then of course, because it's lobster, I was still hungry. So then I walked to a different place and I spent like my kid's college money on a lobster roll. But man, I just really like Portland, Maine. That's it. Dude, Maine is, I've been in Maine multiple times this year and it's, and it's booming. I'm sure the people in Portland are telling you this. Like it has been, there's been a run on, on Portland and what's there's like a couple odd things about Portland. Number one is Portland, Maine, and Portland, Oregon are the same city. Like there's pot no, dispensaries. Never been to Portland, there are po- pot dispensaries everywhere. There's a intractable homeless problem. I'm sure you've seen um, with a lot of drug use on the streets. Um, it's a kind of really liberal city um, with a like a very white liberal city. <laughs> like there's just yeah. a lot going. It lo- physically looks very similar. Um, it's really fascinating. But one, one piece of homework for you is look up. Uh, the Saturday Night Live skit, Maine Justice. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, you of see course, it? it's Justin amazing. Zerler. Amazing. Yeah, it's the it's, it's a the dumbest. Skit. Oh yeah, Sudeikis. Yeah, yeah. So you, of course you've seen it. It's the judge. It's the dumbest, funniest thing ever. Uh, and and I was debating this with somebody the other day. I think Hodari was the one who put me onto this. Where because I not a lot of people don't know this, but Maine has Cajuns, and I don't fully understand the history. You know, you should I ask. Think it, I think it's. Well, I think it's because of, I think it maybe happened partially because of Katrina. I don't know. I don't think they do. No, man. no. I, I think, think it's like a historic actually... Cajun thing. You should ask Sudeikis whether they yeah. were aware of this. Because, I, I mean, Hodari told me this. I've never looked it up. But apparently there are, like, legit Cajuns in Maine. And and the the question is, did they just come up with a nonsensical skit just so. to make it nonsensical? Or were they aware of this history and it's, like, super meta? It's like, I don't know. but. You know what's funny about that is I was I was with Jason um, five five days ago something like that he was in Kansas City for something and we were talking and he just happened to mention that uh, like the shorthand for him sometimes of knowing like a person's personality is when they meet him for the first time what SNL skit they bring up he's like when that happens he's like I can be like oh okay I get I get what this person likes like anyway I just thought that was funny I would say that's my favorite SNL skit of his. Uh, it's so insane, and and in it, and I would say everybody's throwing ninety in that one, but he is the funniest by far. Um, but it's also a reflection it's, of how good Timberlake is because Timberlake is so good. If you like, if you like that skit, check out Potato Chip that he did with Will Forte because he basically does the same character and it's equally. Oh, okay, hilarious. I gotta check it out. Uh, all right, okay. well, we got a little time for yours. I don't really have much going on. I've been reading a lot of books. I'll, I'll recommend to our audience this book. I posted this on Instagram the other day. Um, I've basically given up on TV for a while and I've just been reading tons of books. And it's like, there's this book called, I think, The Firm about Ray Dalio Bridgewater, which is the biggest hedge fund in the world. And mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about this hedge fund coming in. I only knew Ray Dalio as this like big self-promoting guy who wrote book principles and he shows up in all these podcasts. This will blow your mind. Like, I won't say more, but 
this is the most dysfunctional workplace I've ever seen. It's almost like a Willy Wonka chocolate factory meets the people under the stairs in a in a hedge fund. It's the weirdest, scariest, oddest situation. And at the end of the book, you will without a doubt come away from it thinking, you know what, whatever it is I want to do, just go do it. Because if that guy can go out there and start the biggest, most successful hedge fund of all time, listener, there's nothing that can stop you from doing whatever you want to do. Just go do it. If I read this book, will I have a better understanding of what the hell a hedge fund does? Because I have had many friends who are in hedge funds, and I've had many conversations, and I still don't get it. Sort of. What you will come across undoubtedly, and I've, I've long held this theory that if, if, I had, if I had a lot of money, I would, like, and if I were doing these endowments, all there's all this data that like, if you just do an index fund or whatever, you outperform the hedge funds with the fees. This book, like, nails that point home and when they look under the hood and be like what was bridgewater doing and all that it's total bullshit like total yeah. bullshit and 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 it's it's way beyond bullshit like it's it, to say like he makes elizabeth holmes and adam newman look like tim cook and jack welch like this guy yeah. the only reason why he's not in prison is because he was because of the nature of the business not because of his, like he was, I mean, I think he's still there. It's, it's insane. You have to read, and it's a remarkable feat of reporting because this guy talked to tons of people. He's a New York Times reporter, talked to tons of people who obviously had NDAs that had really stiff penalties. I don't know how he did it, but it's crazy, sure. crazy good. Um, really good read. So can't recommend All right. All right. Uh, well, remember to subscribe to Majority 54 wherever you listen to audio podcasts. Just search Majority 54 and please leave a five-star review. Hey, we haven't mentioned it in a while, but you know we're on social media. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on like everything. And I'm at Jason Kander on everything. Uh, so, you know, if you like what you hear and you've been watching us and listening to us, you know, follow us too. It's like, think of it as bonus content. Thank you to the Midas Mighty. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today.